Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. He's involved in a number of businesses. He's a great role model. Telling it like it is. Giving you both sides of the story. This is Cats at Night. Great American, a great New Yorker. Now, here's John Katsimatidis. This is John Katsimatidis. This is Cats at Night. And this is the number one show at 5 o'clock every day on WABC. And uh, we have it in the studio with us. And we have Judge Richard Weinberg. And we have uh, a former chairman of uh, New York State, uh, Ed Cox, for, uh, Republican GOP chairman for 10 years, and my sidekick, Lydia Serrani and and TGIF. Thank God it's Friday. Yesterday was a tragic date. We lost a good friend. We lost uh, uh, we lost Ivana Trump. And uh, I understand uh, Cindy is on the on the red on the uh, phone. Uh, Cindy Adams uh, wants to talk about uh, Ivana Trump. Put Cindy on right now. Cindy, tell us. Cindy, how were you shocked? How well did you know Ivana? Oh my goodness! I knew Ivana. When Donald met her, long before he ever married her, I knew Donald since the Stone Age. And when he was first courting her, she was from the Czech Republic. She knew only communism. She had become a skier. She was very good looking. And she was larger than life. And he wanted someone like that. He wanted something that was showy and that he could show off. And she is and was something very special. Her blonde hair, she had extra pieces stuffed into it. She had long eyelashes with extra fakes glued into it. She was very, very glamorous. She opened a new continent for Donald. It wasn't just 7th Avenue anymore. It wasn't just cement guys at Donald's buildings. She opened for him Europe. She gave him Paris, Sardinia, Saint-Tropez. So she started a whole new culture for Donald. And then he got tired of her because she was in charge. They made the Plaza Hotel, but it was she who was the director. She was the one in charge. She was the one doing the decorating. She was the one doing everything. And as a result, he began to feel he was second-class citizen. He can't take that. He, sp- he spoke to me, and he said, Look, let's just say that as you grow older, things happen. And sometimes a couple grows apart. It's a fact of life. This is often what happens. These are his exact words because I looked up what I quoted him when he said it to me back 25 years ago. He said, "Wow, this isn't something that just happens to me and to nobody else in the whole world. He says, Ivana is gorgeous, talented, smart. There's a lot of love for her, but it's time for me to move on. And what he moved oh on my God. and possibly into 
was Marla. Okay? Then we all know about that. What else do you We all know do? about that. Well, <laughs> Cindy Adams, uh, you'll be telling more about uh, uh, Ivana and uh, during your, your 2 o'clock show this Sunday afternoon. And, one o'clock. Um, one o'clock to two o'clock. I'm on on Sunday on to your. Two o'clock. Yes, and I will tell you all about Ivana. I will tell you all about what she she knew. I will tell you all about what he told me at the time, and I will tell you everything else that nobody else knows. Okay. Cindy and Adams, I love I you, John. To one o'clock. Yes. I love okay? you too. Thank you, Thank babe. You. Wow, that was some interview, wasn't it? Uh, oh, absolutely. Judge, did, did, did you know Ivana at all? Or, or I met Ed her Cox, about two or, three, two or three occasions at different events, John. But, but I didn't move oh, in those circles then or now. I just love Cindy Adams the way she tells it like it is. She, she tells just, it like it she is. She doesn't Boy, hold wow. back. I can't believe Donald <laughs> Trump said that, and then she said, I'm moving in, into Marla. I, I mean, <laughs> oh, my God. But she no give all those her. details about Ivana, yet still... Be positive about her. It's quite something. Well, I think it well, is positive. She was a glamour. She was larger than life. She was an icon. She was Ira Amelda Marcos, you know, uh, Ivana Trump. Who didn't know who Ivana Trump was? We all wanted to be Ivana Trump. She was like New York City royalty. It's a, it's a tragedy. And, and on Sunday morning, uh, I'm going to play. I interviewed Ivana when she did her book about her children. And it's a, a very emotional, very emotional interview. And I'm going to do it about the same time we played Eric Adams last week, about 8.45, uh, 8.50. Uh, and Cat's Roundtable was on between 8 o'clock and 10 o'clock. But it was very emotional. And I, when I did that and when I thought about it, I said, I have to replay it. I have tears in my eyes. And Cindy will be talking about Ivana on her show at 1 o'clock on Sunday. And, and it's very sad. She was too young to have passed away and uh, God bless. Uh, I understand uh, we're going to have Doug Schoen on. Who else do we have today, uh, Lydia? We are going to speak to Doug Schoen, a political analyst. Of course, it's Friday. Larry Kudlow will also be speaking with Ambassador John Bolton, Mario Economou, and Dr. Peter Mikolos. And we've got a minute left before we're going to reach out to Doug Schoen. I want to ask you, John, so President Biden, he's in Saudi Arabia, that infamous fist bump with him. He's trying to get more oil for America. You're an expert uh, when it it comes to what we need to do to become energy independent, to bring inflation down. Do you think President Biden will be successful in his meetings in Saudi Arabia? Lydia, nobody really knows why we're begging uh, the Saudi Arabians for oil. We have all the oil we want in, in Texas, Alaska, Canada, Oklahoma. Why are we begging foreign people? Why are we begging Venezuela? And I understand later on we're going to have Ambassador John Bolton on. Uh, John Bolton just got back from uh, uh, the Far East, and I'd like to ask him about Iran because I understand we're about to make a nuclear, another nuclear deal with Iran that's going to be horrible for the American people. Every deal Washington makes, every deal the White House makes, has been bad for the American people and good for somebody else. And and uh, I, I just, 
Ed Cox. Can yeah, you, can you look, figure it out? Every, every deal they do, it's tens of billions, if not hundreds of billions of American dollars going to them. And, of course, they uh, use that uh, for military purposes and for spread terrorism. their influence. For all terrorism. For terrorism. Yeah. They use it for terrorism. Yeah. It's not, it's not economic development. It's for terrorism. They fund all the radical extreme Islamic terrorists. That's yeah. what they do. Ed Cox, I mean, you've traveled the world. The fact that Biden – talk to us about the impact of President Biden fist bumping. <laughs> well – I mean, Khashoggi, talk to well, us he, about he, it. He, he said uh, during the campaign that uh, that uh, the BMS, the person who's running, uh, running Saudi Arabia, that was going to be a pariah. Right. So a he pariah. called the guy a pariah. Because, because he had killed Khashoggi. Right. And so now it's a question, is he going to shake hands? Is he not? Big issue. Never should have been an issue. Saudi Arabia has been an ally for a long time. The the the, uh, the accords that were made between Israel and the uh, Arab, not Saudi Arabia, but it would not have been done without Saudi Arabia's approval of those accords. But here is another example of President Biden saying one thing and then doing another. I, you know, he called him a pariah. He called him a murderer. And then he goes and fist bumps with them like nothing happened. And, hey, can you do us a favor? Can you give us some oil? Because I shut down all the pipelines. Yeah, but the real problem is he goes to Israel and he says, we have your back. The question is, what does that mean? What is he willing to do to protect Israel? Or is he going to give Israel the right to act unilaterally? to protect themselves and the other allies against Iranian aggression. Well, well, guys, the other thing we wanted to talk about, I mean, it's a mess in Iran, and I look forward to listening to the Ambassador Bolton, but New York State, what's going on between yourself, Ed Cox, and Judge Weinberg? What's going on with the court system? Well, Judge Janet DeFiori, what right. happened? Okay, well, let's... The, the simple, the simple answer is she announced that she's she's retiring. Ed will, can advise us about what that's about. But the real problem about the Court of Appeals is that the left wing hard Democrats have decided that they want to take over that court and move it in a hard left ideological political direction. They do not understand or do not care that courts are not supposed to be ideological. They're not policymakers. They're not lawmakers. They shouldn't be doing that. But yet they've announced that you have to have a so-called progressive chief judge. That's a very dangerous phenomenon. The chief judge of the Court of Appeals, the highest court in New York State, uh, is not just a judge but administers the whole court system. And we have a very too complicated court system here. And actually Judge Weinberg can comment on that. Is that what you're talking about? I believe Doug Schoen is on now, but is that what you call cooking the courts? I, I like that expression, John. Yeah, they are trying to cook the courts. You're exactly right. They're trying I to mean, they, fix they, the results. The legal system. They're it, cooking the legal system. If they cook the courts too, what faith do the American people have in um, our American way of life? Uh, Lydia, bring in Doug Schoen. Uh, we have Doug Schoen. He's a political analyst, author, lobbyist, commentator, and he just he, he tells it like it is. Doug Schoen, welcome back to Cats at Night. We were just thank having thank you, Lydia, and thank you, John. Always a pleasure to be here. We were having a spirited conversation about New York politics, but it kind of resonates all through the United States. John came up with this great expression: "Cooking the courts." Because they want to put in this uh, pro- very progressive judge now that Janet Fiore is leaving. But we also talk about what's going on across the country. They're trying to pack the courts, and then we see what they do well, with. Uh, uh, let's talk. Let, let's talk local, because uh, Doug, 
there, there seems to be a fight within the Democratic Party uh, for to find the soul of the Democratic Party. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I, the progressives are trying to make the argument that the Democrats don't stand for anything. They need to move farther left, if that's possible. Almost be like a European Socialist Party. I think that's a path of doom and destruction for the Democrats that will only lead to permanent minority status and will wreck the country financially. Uh, Doug Ed Cox here. What happened in the Merrill Democratic Merrill nomination here? Uh, what happened to, to the progressives in that here in the city of AOC? Well, they didn't do that badly, Ed. Uh, the vote was divided two or three ways, and Eric Adams managed to really sneak in. But Maya Wiley came pretty close, and she was well behind in the polls. And uh, so I don't think the progressives are dead. They've certainly had a setback with this to fund the police movement, which is complete and total insanity. But uh, I don't think that AOC and her ilk are dead. And uh, I believe AOC in the next two years, Ed will be running for senator or even higher office. Well, AOC supported uh, nine assembly people and seven of the nine lost. And David Patterson, That's, Governor Patterson's comments was the rise and fall of AOC. Yeah, well, uh, I think uh, reports of her demise are somewhat premature. Um, the, Bronx Republican, the Bronx Republican Party got rid of that state senator because they said he was too left. Yeah, I, 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 look, I just think we are dealing with a Democratic Party that uh, while not taken over by the progressives, the number of moderates who think like I do in the Democratic Party is precious few and getting smaller uh, by the day. I, I am not sanguine about the prospects for reason and rationality in the party that I grew up in and have traditionally called my home. Is that the reason that the Republicans in the upcoming uh, national elections are going to have a huge number of, the largest number is probably since 1928 of representatives in the House of Representatives? It's certainly a contributing factor, Ed, and I believe that the Democratic Party is exacerbating the difficulties that the Biden administration has had. And the other thing about the Biden administration, they've shown no willingness to trim the sales. And indeed, if anything that I've seen lately, they've gone back to this Build Back Better agenda, which I thought well, was DOA last year. So so if it's is it ideological or is it the economy, stupid? You, you of course, uh, were advisor to President Clinton. And it was James Carville, his political advisor, says it's the economy, stupid. Is it the economy, stupid here? Or is it the ideology where the where the Democrats are going? I think it's both. I think, look, probably the economy is the primary driver. But with Bill Clinton, he understood. I certainly did what I could to facilitate but he understood that it was unsustainable to pursue a course of action involving big spending and big tax increases. And he changed, went for welfare reform, tough on crime, uh, balanced budget. The era of big government is over? Correct. That, you know, we're not hearing that, though a lot of the people that are in senior positions, Ed, in the uh, uh, 
uh, Biden administration were people I worked with and presumably would know better. Doug Schoen, there is talk about President Trump, former President Trump, announcing his run for the White House for 2024. It could come any time now. What do you think that would do to the midterm elections? Does he have a shot? And if Biden doesn't run, so it's a two-part question, what other viable candidate is there? Well, uh, I'm not sure Biden at this point is viable, though a couple of years in politics is a lifetime. I I think Trump uh, entering the presidential race in 2024 now will benefit the Democrats, if only because it will give them something to talk about other than their woeful economic and political performance. Uh, That being said, I think he has a real shot to win largely because he isn't uh, Biden and because his performance, despite the obvious issues that we are now seeing emerging about January 6th, are suggestive that his uh, administration, at least in a lot of ways, economically, if nothing else, compares favorably to the Biden. Well, Pelosi and co. believe that the abortion issue by the the decision by the Supreme Court is going to save them, don't they? They're really touting that. Is that going to work? I think it will have limited benefit in a limited number of uh, West Coast and East Coast districts. But, you know, it, it was a decision, as you know, Ed, that didn't outlaw abortion. It just returned power to the states. And um, uh, I think it will have less impact in the midterms, ultimately, than those on the left might think or wish. Doug, it's, uh, it's Richard Weinberg. There's an interesting article in today's National Review from Dan McLaughlin. talked about how the 2012 election was the turning point that gave us deranged politics. Because instead of people trying to play to the center and appeal to the moderate centrist independents, they were going just trying to enlarge their bases and to polarize the country. What do you think about that? Well, I think Biden ran as a moderate. He was going to bring us together. He was going to heal the nation. But he's governed Richard in a very different way. So I don't think the election necessarily uh, was, you know, a, a harbinger of deranged politics. So the Democrats, I think, took absolutely the wrong message from those election results and appear to continue to do so. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for being with us, Doug Schoen. And uh, we look forward to speaking with you again very soon. Very good. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And have when a we, great weekend. And when we come back, we will have Larry Kudlow, the top economic advisor in the world. Keep it right here. Cats at night. It's a common-sense recap of the big stories. It's Cats at Night on 77 WABC. We are back. We are back. This is John Katzmatidis, and uh, we have uh, the country's number one economist. We have Larry Kudlow with us and and the number one show on Fox Business. And uh, Larry... uh, the the markets opened up this morning that it was going to be the end of the world. The markets were down, down, down. And I said to my son, uh, this is not right. The earnings are not that bad. And the markets turned around and went to the moon. What say you? <laughs> well, uh, I guess Citibank's earnings were, were much better. Look, I think the single biggest positive for the stock market is the fact that Joe Manchin, 
is not going to go along with this crazy trillion-dollar reconciliation bill of Chuck Schumer's, which would raise spending and raise taxes, raise taxes on small businesses, raise taxes on successful earners, raise taxes on corporations. I mean, I think this is a tremendous relief rally for that. And I think Manchin's uh, kind of a hero and going to put an end to this nonsense. So the last thing we need is a gigantic tax hike that would uh, depress the economy more or another gigantic spending bill that would increase inflation more. So that's the way I looked at that. I think Manchin was a hero and um, my hat's off to him. Uh, Larry, Ed Cox here. Uh, regardless of uh, this maybe Build Back Better bill uh, uh, and that Manchin killed it, uh, are we really hearing the new word that uh, we heard in the Carter administration, but new now, and that is dreaded politically stagflation? Is that what we're getting into? Uh, yeah, basically. Uh, I still think we're in the front end of the recession. And I think the inflation is going to prove to be very sticky. It's going to take several years to get rid of this inflation. And um, Milton Friedman used to call it uh, inflationary recession. And I think that's the, the big threat. I mean, it's kind of interesting. Like retail sales were up today in nominal terms. But if you adjusted for the CPI, they were actually negative. And uh, also um, – Manufacturing output was down for the second straight month, and we've seen earlier that real wages uh, have been now falling, I think, for 13 consecutive months or some such thing. So the economy is not in good shape. Uh, but again, it, whatever you think the economy is, uh, raising taxes, particularly the, the most incredible thing was this slapping a 3.8 percent tax. Uh, on these small business pass-throughs, and it was done with a phony reason that it was, uh, you know, some kind of tax, a FICA tax loophole, which was completely untrue. And uh, we talked about it on our show almost every day this week, and I think Joe Manson was watching. He's a friend of mine, and he's been on the show. So we dodged an important bullet here. I mean, look, uh, we should be deregulating energy and deregulating business uh, we should be cutting taxes or at least making the Trump corporate tax cuts permanent or extend them another 10 years. Those are the kinds of things that would mitigate uh, the recession and the inflation. You know, you can kill You can you can damage inflation or conquer inflation by increasing the supply of goods and services. It doesn't all have to fall on the shoulders of the Fed. So. At least we dodged that bullet, and you know, and I think that was very important. And my own view is that's the reason stocks have done a lot better today. It was a very strong relief rally. I don't know that it's going to last. I'm probably not smart enough to know, but I'm just saying this was a good thing that Manchin has done. Uh, understood. Uh, and and uh, Larry, uh, where where do you think? I heard you say this morning on uh, Fox uh, that you believe the the rates are going to go up as high as a point. Yeah, and me and you differ on that. And and do you really feel? Isn't that similar? Raising the rates a point or raising taxes isn't that a similar problem to our economy? Well, not exactly. I mean, you know, these tax changes affect incentives uh, to produce and to invest. The interest rate problem, John, in my view at least, 
is that rates are so far below the inflation rate that it still is easy money. And my view has always been when you get into situations like this, get it done as fast as possible. What you want to avoid is embedding inflation fears or inflation expectations into the economy. And, you know, as each month goes by, I mean, whether the inflation rate for the month is 10 percent or 6 percent or 8 percent or whatever, it's not 2 percent, which is the uh, the Fed's target. So I don't know what the exact inflation rate. I would say the underlying basic inflation rate is probably somewhere around 6 or 7 percent. And that's taking out the spikes and gasoline and, and oil and things of that sort. And the so-called core rate. And I think the Fed's got to get its target rate above that level. And, the, you know, the, the faster they get it done, the faster the pain will uh, pass. But the longer they, you know, the longer they continue this, um, the worse it's going to get. And this was what we learned in the 1970s. So uh, I don't want halfway measures. I want them to go full hog. I, I think they should go a full percentage point. I, I don't know that they will. Uh, the meeting is next week. Uh, I think they should do it, and I think they're going to have to come back and do 75 or 100 in September. I mean, in some sense, their fight has just begun. They're so far behind the curve. They're like 18 months behind the curve, for that matter. Well, hey, well wouldn't reducing the price of uh, oil uh, have a similar effect if we went to war and to reduce the price of oil? No, well, look, oil is one component of inflation, but you're seeing now uh, one of the reserve banks put out a study that 68% of all the items in the CPI, which is like 5,000 items, 68% of those items, uh, their prices are rising by 5% or better. I mean, oil is just a part of this inflation problem. It's a macroeconomic problem, uh, which the oil story made it much worse. And uh, that's you know too bad. But uh, you can't just blame this on oil. Again, if you take oil out of the index, uh, you'll, you're still left with 6% inflation, which is three times the Fed's 2% target. And the authorities know that. They just didn't want to act on it for whatever reason. I mean, they made a mistake. They thought it was going to go away. It didn't go away. And that's because we had too much easy money. Um, they put too much cash into the economy, and the government spent too much money. So, no, I, I think this is going to be a much more difficult problem. I understood. Uh, last question. Uh, the banks. Uh, Citibank didn't do so bad. J.P. Morgan. Uh, was the real losses just reserves? What, what say you? Uh, you know, I read a little bit. I didn't read the Citibank account, John. I did read the uh, J.P. Morgan account. Uh, their revenues were lower. So that was an interesting point. Um, some of that, I think, came from trading. Uh, but I think some of it may have come from lending. They did put loss reserves uh, aside. Jamie Dimon's a good banker. But I don't think the banks are in trouble. I mean, the, the, the banks are heavily capitalized. This comes out of the crash of 2008 and 2009. I think the banks, you know, in the last 10 or 15 years have done a very good job. They probably have more than adequate capital. So I'm not worried about some kind of bank crack up or bank uh, meltdown. Yeah. But I would warn 
we will be seeing sloppier and sloppier uh, profit reports. And one indicator of this, I had Jason Trenner on the show yesterday. Uh, business prices, producer prices, are rising faster than consumer prices. And that usually means a profit squeeze. So I'm a little concerned that Wall Street may be, uh, shall we say, irrationally exuberant about profits. Just a coin of phrase. Understood. <laughs> well, Larry Kudlow, thank you so much for coming on, and uh, have a great weekend. It looks like the sun is going to shine all weekend. And <laughs> I, I want to remind I, so. I want to remind everybody, tune in to Larry Kudlow on WABCRadio.com, 770 on your dial or on your iPhone at 77WABC app. Uh, the cavalry is coming <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I thought we lost the cavalry. Uh, and, uh, Never. Saturday, Saturday, ten o'clock to Saturday at one o'clock, and uh, look you. forward to listening to you tomorrow and finding out what the heck is going on. Thank you so much. Thanks, Thanks. And let's take a break, and when we come back, we're going to come back with Ambassador John Bolton to find out what the heck is going on in the Middle East. John Welcome back to the John Katzmatidis Cats at Night Show. Now on the line for us, Ambassador John Bolton. How are you, sir? Glad to be with you. Thanks for having me. So talk to us. We see President Biden. He's in the Middle East, the famous uh, fist bump heard around the world with the Saudi crown prince. Uh, what have you heard? What do you know? Well, I don't think uh, very much comes out of this uh, meeting. Uh, the White House has touted uh, an announcement by the Saudis and others that they'll be increasing their oil production in July and August by about 50 percent. That sounds like a lot, but uh, OPEC last month already agreed to a production increase. Uh, and I, I, we don't know for sure, but I doubt that Saudi Arabia has announced it's going to increase its production more than agreed with its OPEC partners. So I think that is probably baked into the oil price and don't think it will have much impact on gasoline in the United States at the pump, which is what Biden was really after. I mean, I think the real impression Biden's visit to Saudi leaves is that after saying he was going to make Saudi Arabia a pariah because of the killing of uh, the journalist Jamal Khashoggi, uh, he's gone. He's asked uh, for Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, to do something for the United States. He's got it. And he's uh, he's uh, given up on the, the campaign rhetoric uh, that he used uh, in the 2020 election. So he, 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 wouldn't, he wouldn't answer the phone. The Saudis wouldn't answer the phone against uh, uh, President Biden. And I guess he decided to go uh, in person. Uh, is there still a little bit of soreness in relationships uh, between the two? And uh, are the Saudis also uh, close to, still close to Putin? Uh, where, where, where's that relationship like? Well, I think uh, uh, there's certainly a lot of soreness left between uh, the Saudis and the Emiratis and others and the Biden administration. Two principal reasons. Number one, the Biden administration continuing determination against all logic and, and fact to go back into the 2015 Iran nuclear deal, which the Saudis have the same position on as the Israelis. They think that's a big mistake. 
number one. And number two, the, the view that the Biden administration has that the civil war in Yemen is really the fault of Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates rather than Iran, which is supplying the Houthi rebels with drones and missiles that they are firing at civilian targets in Saudi and uh, and the UAE. And we don't know much more about the discussion that's just concluded between Biden and the crown prince, MBS. Uh, but I'd sure like to know what that exchange was. The fact is, right now in the Middle East, we've got a closer relationship between uh, most of the Gulf Arab states and Israel than they do with the United States. The The Russian connection is, look, they're, they're hedging their bets. They think the, the administration's fickle. Uh, they worry about uh, what its climate change objectives are. Uh, so, so they're going to hedge their bets with Russia, with China. That's not in the U.S. best interest, but they're being pushed away from the U.S. by this administration. Uh, Ed Cox Ambassador here. Also, this, uh, Ed, I interrupted you last time. I'll, I'll take the next question. You do this one. Yeah. Does Does Biden know what he's doing here? He's arming the Ukrainian to the teeth to kill off Putin's army and uh, maybe Putin politically, uh, and yet using Putin to negotiate with Iran a deal while he's visiting is Israel and Saudi Arabia. Uh, does he know what he's doing? Well, it's uh, no. The answer to that is no, uh, Ed. You're right. But <laughs> but neither does the rest of his administration. And it shows how jumbled up their policies are. This Iran nuclear deal is a relic from the Obama years. The Trump administration got out of it quite correctly. Going back in is a big mistake. Uh, and, and siding, in effect, looking to Iran to provide stability in the Middle East is is the right answer only for Iran. For everybody else, Israel and the Arab states alike, they see Iran as the main threat. So uh, I just this is uh, it's like Biden has gone into a, a memory hole uh, of 10, 15, 20 years ago and can't come back out of it. And what about the? Uh... I, I understand. Though, I understand that there's a, an Iran deal in the making. That's a big problem for our country. What in, in the rumor mill? What have you heard? Well, I think the administration, which said like last October, okay, we're we're just about done negotiating with Iran to try and find a deal, that that it, it's uh, it's a, it's a deal that won't that simply won't die. Uh, the the Iranians have asked for a number of concessions. They keep coming back to number one for Biden to pledge that no future U.S. administration will withdraw from the deal, which is impossible for them to commit to. Uh, or number two, even more offensive, is that uh, the administration take uh, Iran's Revolutionary Guards Corps, their, the, the, the most fanatic uh, element of their military, off the list of uh, foreign terrorist organizations, which Biden has now said he won't do. I, I don't know what the compromise is. Frankly, they should have given up on – they never should have gotten into trying to renegotiate the deal, and they should have given it up a long time ago. But it's got such significance for them politically – They haven't been able to let it go. There is no good deal with Iran that allows them any capacity for uranium enrichment. That was the central flaw of the 2015 deal. It would be the central flaw if we went back into the deal today. And Ambassador, it's Richard Weinberg. And what about the so-called declarations, Jerusalem declaration about pledging the security of Israel and the, uh, the uh, the Arab states? What is that all about and how does that work out in terms of these negotiations? Well, I do think, as a number of people have pointed out, there is an interesting symbolic significance, a plus for Israel, frankly, a plus for the United States, 
to call it the Jerusalem Declaration. It's an acknowledgement Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. Not not that most people had any doubt about it, but in the Democratic Party, for, for many of their most radical uh, members of Congress, that they didn't like that. Biden has agreed to it. But if you look at the substance of the declaration, uh, what they say about the uh, Iran getting a nuclear weapon is existing declared U.S. policy. I think as a matter of uh, substantive policy coming out of the Israel trip, not much new. Ambassador Bolton, would you want to clarify your comments? I mean, there was such an uproar about uh, overthrowing the governments, about Europe and all that other stuff. Sure. Look, uh, it, it has been a policy of the United States to look out for its own national interest. And that has included the full spectrum of, of U.S. power. If you ask me uh, to prevent Iran or North Korea from getting deliverable nuclear weapons that could hit the United States, would I support regime change? Would I support a coup d'etat against those regimes? You better believe I would. And let's just not forget Joe Biden, who said a mere month, few months ago, that he didn't uh, want Putin to stay in power in Russia because of uh, their invasion of Ukraine. Now, his his administration rolled that back, but there's a long tradition here. You go back to John Kennedy uh, trying to overthrow Castro in the Bay of Pigs invasion, overthrowing the Diem regime in Vietnam in 1963. I could go on. It's a long list. I think the snowflakes uh, uh, were clutching their pearls when they heard that. But, uh, you know, we ought to do what's good for the United States. Ambassador Bolton, then why such a backlash? Because if anybody knows history, that we should be putting America first. Well, you know, you know where the backlash came from? The Russians didn't like it. The Chinese didn't like it. Erdogan in Turkey didn't like it. Evo Morales, the uh, uh, near communist in Ecuador, didn't like it. I, I was quite happy to be criticized by those people. Well, thank you so much, Ambassador John Bolton. Thank you for everything that you do and for being a great American. Thank you, sir. Well, thanks for having me. Have a good weekend. And now we're going to go straight to a report out of Europe, Mario Economou, a former banker, and he is there. And, you know, you always have the latest, greatest breaking news. Mario Economou, what is going on in Europe? Yeah, hello, everybody. So Europe's on fire, literally, metaphorically, but also physically. Um, There's a heat wave. There's fires in at least half a dozen countries, forest fires. They're having a hard time putting them out, combined with a water drought. And this is... Uh, complements rather the situation literally, the, uh, metaphorically, that le- Europe's on fire. You've got the United Kingdom currently with uh, in the process of trying to select a new prime minister for the Conservative Party that's the governing party there. You have Italy, a government where Mr. Draghi, who was the prime minister, has essentially resigned. And even though the president, Mattarella, has said that he will not accept his resignation, the fact is it is a done deal. They're going to need to figure out what the next step is. You have farmers in Holland, the Netherlands, uh, which, by the way, is the second largest agricultural exporter in the world after the United States, um, who are literally blocking all of the highways. They are also blocking all of the warehouses, the food distribution centers. The supermarkets now are running out of products. They have been told that they're not allowed to use fertilizer and they're supposed to curb uh, their farming products due to global warming. Of course, that makes them very unhappy because it's going to have a direct impact on their quality of life and their ability to earn a living. You have other situations in other European countries, specifically in France, uh, which you have a president who came out of a parliamentary election very, very weakened. Um, And this points to a very interesting situation in Europe. 
you have a President Putin who everybody has been trying to sanction and make uh, make the Russian people in Russia suffer. Quite the contrary is happening. The euro is actually collapsing. The ruble continues to be very strong. President Putin is very comfortable and strong. And now we have an additional problem in Europe, which is if President Putin decides to pick up the phone to speak to someone in Europe to see if there can be an agreement that can be reached regarding the Ukraine, regarding natural gas, regarding the wheat, uh, regarding fertilizer, he doesn't know who to call because just about every country in Europe at its leadership level is in crisis. Uh, Mario, so you left out uh, one one other little problem, and that's uh, Poland and Germany. I hear they're at loggerheads on some things. Yes, well, uh, Germany itself, uh, which is interesting, uh, the uh, chancellor in Germany's poll ratings are actually even lower than those of President Biden in the United States. Um, they are completely uh, panicked by the fact that Uh, Nord Stream 1, the pipeline which was currently up until now providing natural gas, has shut down and it's scheduled to reopen in theory next week because they're waiting for a certain part from Canada, which Canada will not release due to the sanctions. So the Russians are saying if you can't release that part, the pipeline won't open. The fact is the Germans have accepted that the Russians, whether they get the part or not, will most likely not reopen the pipeline. And they're going to actually push now very hard on, from the Russian side into the German side to make the Germans suffer uh, at the natural gas level. Germany has already announced that come the uh, fall and the winter, they will actually be decreasing the hours when heating will be provided to households, especially uh, in the night hours. They are telling people to prepare for food shortages. They're going to start handing out coupons, essentially, so people can go out and buy food. This is real. It's happening. It's not a joke. Uh, this was something that many of us had this seen. Is, this is World War Three, a different kind of yes. war, though. It's the, it's For now, it's a different of kind of war. For now, yes, it is a different kind of war, and let's hope it doesn't escalate into uh, the other kind of war. Specifically on the Ukrainian front, the HIMARS missile systems that the U.S. has supplied have actually been working quite well. They have been able to hit the Russians quite hard. Uh, the uh, Kremlin has said that it's not the Ukrainians that are actually operating these missile systems, which are very sophisticated, but it's actually American and uh, United Kingdom uh, militaries, uh, soldiers, advisors that are there who are actually using these systems and actually hitting the Russian targets. The, 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 the point being that there's no way the Ukrainians could have been trained this quickly to be able to use those systems effectively. The good news in this, the silver lining in all of this is that we now know that these HIMARS systems, which have not been used against the Russians, actually do work, and they work very well. They're very effective if you know how to use them. So that's something which is very positive for the United States uh, in this whole uh, uh, in this whole uh, war. Could they uh, be used the situa- to hit the Ukrainian? I mean, excuse me, the Russian fleet in the Crimea. Uh, well, they're actually being used. No, they're actually being used to hit Russian tanks, which are in the eastern part in the regions where Russia controls uh, large uh, territories. Uh, They're actually hitting them, but they're hitting them from very far away. So the Russian tanks and the operators of the systems on the front lines on the Russian side cannot see where these things are coming from. So they're hitting them, and they're creating uh, a little bit of panic on the Russian side. The problem is that it's not enough because, uh, to give you an idea, the Russians are firing roughly 50 to 60,000 
artillery and missile uh, uh, rounds into uh, the Ukraine a day, uh, the Ukrainians are able to hit back with roughly 5,000. So they are completely outgunned. So the Ukrainians are saying what they're going to do in this uh, launch that they've, uh, uh, they're doing, basically they're trying to hit the Russians back, they're trying to regroup, they're saying we're going to try to let the Russians essentially exhaust their stockpile of weapons. The problem is the Russians have a lot of those weapons, and they're going to keep hitting the Ukrainians to grind this thing on until one side, and that being the Ukrainian side, says enough's enough. We can't do this anymore. Mario Kahneman, we're running out of time. I just have to ask you a two-part question. First, uh, what caused the collapse of Europe? It sounds like is it is the Russia-Ukraine to start this whole domino effect? And how will this all affect America? What's going on overseas? How will uh, it affect that us real here? fast. Mismanagement of Europe. They're trying to be all things to all people. Mario, you answer it real fast. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's a complete mismanagement and a lack of leadership in Europe. And how does this affect America? America comes out of this much stronger. Uh, Europe comes out the biggest loser. This is what I said when this whole thing started. Uh, America comes out stronger. Europe comes out a complete loser. And we could even actually see certain countries actually in time starting to say we no longer want to be a part of the Eurozone or even the European Union. There is one country in Europe, and I will say this, a lot of people get upset when I say this, but there is one country in Europe that actually still has a lot of hope left and that we're actually seeing German companies now moving from Germany to this country and uh, anybody, anybody can guess which country Poland? it is? Poland? Hungary. Hungary. Wow, very interesting. Hungary. Victor Orban, Hungary. The, the, the Hungary prime minister is coming to this country in the next couple of months, and he wants to be in the studio. Uh, you should see if you can get him in. I don't think the Hungarian prime minister will see eye to eye with President Biden on just about anything. But if so you recall, uh, you had once one of your pollsters who was in Hungary. I remember listening to your oh, program one evening, and he was reporting in from Hungary. Hungary is a uh, almost like the last hope for Europe. And a lot of people don't like it when we say this because they don't like Viktor Orban. They don't like his policies. They don't like his politics. They feel he's too far to the right. But the reality is <laughs> Viktor Orban is doing everything he has to do for Hungary first. And the, as the last note, and we're going to take a break. Thank you, Mario, for being on. Have a great weekend. It is the fact is if the if the Americans want to follow the Europeans, we're going to lose just like the Europeans are going to lose. Let's take a break, and when we come back, we're going to come back with Dr. Peter Michalos, and he's got some new uh, innovations in uh, in medicine. It's a common sense recap of the big stories. It's Cats at Night on 77 WABC. Welcome back to the John Katzmatidis Cats at Night show. Now on the line for us, Dr. Peter Mikolos, our resident medical genius, Renaissance man. What do you have for us to let us know how we can live longer? Well, today we're going to talk about the gut microbiome. And what that is, everything from our mouth to our exit consists of the gut microbiome. And now with genomic studies from the Sanger Institute in the European Union, they've identified over 140,000 viruses inside living in our gut coexisting with us. And 100 trillion bacteria live in our gut at any one time with three to 500 different species. And we now know that 70% of the human immune system is our gut. And we used to think it was the lymph nodes. And we're learning that if you have an imbalance in your gut microbiome, it contributes to things like obesity, inflammatory bowel disease, 
allergies, depression. And we're finding out that the gut also has a gut-brain axis, and it actually communicates with the brain. And even what we're eating communicates with the brain. For example, if you eat stressed plants like olive oil, for example, from Morocco that's exposed to dehydration and UV, it signals to the gut that, oh, boy, there's adversity in your environment. You better start, you know, beefing up and getting stronger and preparing yourself. And now we know that uh, the gut microbiome is involved in longevity, 20% of our longevity is our genes and 80% of it is uh, environmental and, uh, you know, how we live and what we're eating. And we now know that certain uh, bacteria are associated with the aging process. For example, there's one called Acromancia bacteria, and they found it consistently in people as we age, you have more of it. So in the future, we'll be able to adjust our microbiome with probiotics and get Again, improve our health. And there's one called R. ruteri associated with depression, anxiety. And they found that if you take those probiotics, there's some studies happening right now, and people with certain uh, mental disorders are improving just with probiotics. So you're basically your genes are the guitar that you're given at birth, but how you play it is up to you, your family, and your environment. Well, that's so some breaking news that what you eat, your biome uh, probiotics could help your mental state. That I've yeah, never heard no, before. Absolutely. Well, it's happening before, and there's an entire gut-brain axis between hormones, our vagus nerve, our stomach, and it communicates constantly with the brain and tells it what to do. And that's why when we eat too much sugar, it actually feeds a lot of the bad bacteria, and they start to overgrow. Wow. And certain funguses like candida, they overgrow when we eat pure sugar. So what we eat is very important. And the plant-based Mediterranean diet, and as we talked about in the blue zones like Icaria, Greece, Loma Linda, California. And uh, speaking of Greece, I'm sitting here with a great Spartan, Jimmy Moshevitis, our friend who came to visit me, a 98-year-old World War II veteran who survived Iwo Jima and uh, saw kamikazes uh, face-to-face. And uh, he's here with me now, and, and uh, he's a testament of living longer, and he's been following the Mediterranean diet and moderation and eating his olive oil. And uh, we all can aspire to be like Jimmy Mochavitis. But now does well, he drink give, coffee? Let me give a shout-out to Jimmy Mochavitis. Jimmy, Jimmy, you, you, you're always uh, a great tennis player. Yep. He, he's, he's, he's saying thank you very much, and he sends his regards. And we're going to go visit the uh, Greek festival and uh, light a candle for America and the WABC team. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Mikolos. Thank you for everything that you do. And by the way, John, I just got messages that there are people listening to us, some guy named James in Geneva, Switzerland. He said he can't be without listening to WABC. Wow. Well, it's going to be a long weekend. It's going to be a beautiful weekend. And I want to say thank you to all our listeners. I want to say thank you, Judge Weinberg. Thank you to Ed Cox for being in. Lydia, thank you. And uh, what is this? uh, What do we stand for? Truth, justice, and the American way. American way. And thank you, Dr. Michalos. Thank you, Jimmy Marshavides. And God bless uh, New York and God bless America. Thank you so much. 